We don't know where my grandpa Julius is. He didn't answer when we knocked on his door, room 217 of the Chula Vista Holiday Inn. The desk clerk, an old white lady who's only talking because Molly's asking the questions, is ringing his room. Molly's miffed with me. She gives me the quick sidelong glances that say, why am I the only one who ever talks when we're dealing with clerks or cashiers? She doesn't know how this old lady looked at me when we came in, like she'd already dialed six of the seven numbers for the cops and was just waiting for me to make one wrong move or say one wrong thing to dial the seventh. The last time I told her that, she asked if maybe I was being paranoid. I said, remember how mad you got when you told me about that movie director you picked up from the airport to take to the lecture who hit on you? And I said, maybe he wasn't. We didn't talk for three days. She remembered that, but I don't think she took my point. Maybe I'm not as good at the silent treatment as she is. The desk clerk hangs up. He's not answering. Can you open the room, I ask. Molly shoots another look at me. I say with my look back, you wanted me to talk? I talked. What is this? The desk clerk says. Ma'am, I say, that's my grandfather in there. We're supposed to pick him up, which means he's supposed to be up and ready. If he isn't, I need to know why. The old lady looks me over close, as if I have words written on me in type too small for her to read. When she's done, she snatches a key from the hook marked 217 and says, You two stay here. I'll look. Out of the lobby she goes. She and your dad should go bowling, I say. You're sure your grandfather knew we were the ones who were supposed to pick him up? I don't know what he knew. I know what Dad told Mom to tell me. You don't think he'd try to walk there or something, do you? He might, I think. Once Grandpa Julius gets an idea in his head, it's always hard to shift it. He might try it, bad leg and all, just because he got impatient waiting for us. We're not late, but maybe he got bored hanging around, or this old lady pissed him off, or somebody next to him was playing music too loud. Who knows? Back comes the old lady. He's gone. She hangs the key back up on the hook. What do you mean gone? Molly asks. He's not in his room, the old lady says. Did you see him leave? Molly asks. I don't have any interest in the comings and goings of his kind of people, the old lady says. Are his bags still there? Yep. May I use your phone, ma'am? The old lady points a bony finger toward the payphones in the corner. I pat my pockets for a dime. Molly hands me one from her purse, and I go over to make the call home. Mom answers my news with, He probably did something silly like head out to eat before coming to the barbecue. He's getting that age. Come on home, he'll call. Your dad can pick him up. Soon we're back in Molly's car. She says, Can you believe that desk clerk? Who knew that's how Lurlene Wallace is supporting herself these days? Yeah, I can believe it. We get to my parents' place, a ranch-style adobe house with a masonry roof that my dad will brag about to whoever listens. The adobe keeps it 10 degrees cooler inside. I save a bunch on electricity. Molly doesn't know that he will say this to her at least three times today. It's hard to find parking close. Everyone's already here. We end up around the corner and up a block. We walk down a few steps before Molly reminds me to get my movie out of the trunk. I go back, open the trunk, and pull out of our cooler the can containing my print of Birth of a Living Dead Nation. I wonder if I left it in the car on purpose. Molly would tell me I should be excited to show it, 
but she doesn't know that my family doesn't really get me or what I do. They won't say they hate it, but they'll say they'll like it in a way that makes it clear how little they think of it. When we get in and start greeting the relatives on the way to my mom, Molly seems at ease. I don't know if she is at ease, but she seems that way. I'm glad. This is her first time meeting everybody here, and I was scared that, as liberal as she claims to be, she'd tense up. But no, she's good. Finally, we get to the living room. And there's my mom. I show her the can of film. Good, she says. Your dad has the projector and the screen already in the living room. You can set it up. I turn around, and who do I see but Grandpa Julius, standing next to my uncle, both with coffee cups in their hands. Stunned, we greet him. He insists on giving Molly a hug. After that, I ask him where he was. Oh, I came here. I didn't like that hotel. And your cousin Grace is staying with friends instead, so there's some room for me here after all. I ask Mom why she didn't say anything. Julius and Uncle Frank just got here. I didn't know myself, but I'm okay with him staying. But his bags are back at the hotel, I say. Has he checked out? A shift in wind direction carries the aroma of the meat smoking in the backyard into the house and I suddenly want to eat everything in sight. No, I need to focus. Mom asks Grandpa Julius if he's checked out yet. Molly shows me her watch. It's 10.40 a.m., almost checkout time. Molly volunteers to run back, get his stuff, and get him checked out. Mom takes the can of film from me and puts it by the projector. Your dad can set it up. He likes to show off how good he is at it, she says. I'm not sure he is good at it, but I don't have time to argue. Grandpa hands us the room key, and back we go toward the car. When we're outside, I notice my older brother Charles is walking close behind us. He's thin enough you could almost mistake him for one of our shadows, and maybe that was his idea. What do you need, Charles? I ask. Can you guys give me a lift? I need to meet with somebody. It'll just take a second. We're in a hurry, Charles, I say. Get somebody else to drive you. But you're going now. Uh, we can stop on the way back, can't we? Stop where? The usual place. No way. Where's the usual place, Molly asks. Forget it. It's my car, so I have some say. Where? I know where, I say. She doesn't know it's his heroin dealer. And we don't have time for me to explain it in a way that won't start a fight. We've reached our car. Can I at least ride with you, Charles says. We don't get many chances to say hello. And I'm still your big brother, right? In the back, I say, hurry up. On the way... Charles won't shut up. He gossips about everyone in the family. I guess he has a lot of time to see and hear things since he still lives in his old room and works only part-time at Uncle Frank's pitch and putt. Molly must think he's pretty pathetic, and he is, but what she doesn't know is that he was supposed to be the promising one in the family. He inherited Dad's math and engineering skills. He made the straight A's. He got accepted to Caltech. I'd been chasing him my whole life. I didn't expect him to let me pass him. It doesn't matter to my dad, of course. I still disappoint him, but I know I can't break his heart the way Charles has. A few minutes go by and we mercifully arrive at the hotel. Molly goes with us to open the door to room 217. Then she heads over to the office to check Grandpa Julius out while we load his bags into the car. He's got a couple of big, heavy suitcases. Grandpa Julius doesn't travel light, I guess. So I haul one out and Charlie comes behind me with the other. It's only a short walk back to the car, but when we get there, my arms are tired and I have to put the bag down to get the feeling back in my fingers. 
Just what is Grandpa Julius carrying that's so heavy? He needed to bring his anvils with him? When I'm ready to open the trunk, Charlie says, You should go check on her. Well, let's put the bags in first. I'll take care of them. You should see what the holdup is. Toss me the keys. I hand Charlie the car keys. He opens the trunk and hoists the bags in. Molly's car bounces on its tires. When Charlie shuts the trunk, he says, She should get her suspension checked. What suspension? It's a bug. Good point. I'll go on. I'll watch the car. I head over to the office to find Molly standing behind an irate customer who's complaining about the noise. I think it serves the desk clerk right to have to deal with someone like this, but it means we could be stuck here longer, and it could mean that we're going to have to argue with the clerk about checkout time to keep Grandpa Julius from having to pay for an extra day. I put my arm around Molly, and she leans her head against my shoulder. It's the first time I've felt comfortable all day, and I look out the window and see Charlie driving Molly's car away. Molly, I say. Yes. Don't overreact, but I think Charlie just stole your car. Molly's eyes widen. She pushes to get me off her and runs outside screaming, Charlie! I run after her. We chase Charlie to a light, which turns green when we're still about 30 feet from him, and off he goes. Molly leans against a chain-link fence, panting and sweating. Where is... He going. I know. Once he was supposed to be giving me a lift to the art store for airbrush paint, but instead he drove me out to El Cajon to this shitty apartment building. He told me he'd just be a minute. Then he ran upstairs and left me there for two hours. When he came down, I knew he couldn't drive, so I just walked around with him for another three hours listening to him talk to bullshit junkies like to talk. By the time we got back, someone had stolen our car, and we had to find a payphone to call my mom and have Uncle Frank come and get us. That's why nobody lets Charlie drive anymore. El Cajon, I think. El Cajon. I, I don't know, San Diego. Where is that? Maybe 20 miles from here? How is he driving my car? He must have lifted your keys off me. He told me to go see what was keeping you. Shit, Molly says. How are we supposed to get home? I'm sure he'll bring the car back. Why? Why are you sure of that? Because after he buys his shit, he has no place else to go. He has to come home. Is your grandfather's luggage still back there? No, Charlie has it. Let's hope he doesn't sell all your grandfather's stuff. Shit, let's hope he doesn't sell my car. Maybe we should call the cops. No, I say. No? Your brother stole my car. The usual procedure when that happens is to tell the police so they can get the car back. Yeah, they'll get the car back. They might shoot him, too. How would you like that? I say. What I'm thinking is that it'll probably come down to something like that sooner or later, because anyone stupid enough to pull something like this is bound to piss off the wrong person sooner or later and get himself killed. If he doesn't stick too much in his arm first, I just... I just don't want it to be today. Did your parents ever get their car back, Molly asks. Nope. The Buick they drive now came from the insurance. Well, Molly says as she stands up straight and wipes her brow, if it doesn't come back, at least I'll have an excuse to visit my parents less. How much money you got? I check my pockets. Ten bucks. Molly checks her purse. I got twelve. More than enough for a cab to get to your folks. You call them, I say. I don't have good luck with cabs. 
She doesn't give me a quizzical look when I say that, so I guess Molly is starting to know some things. We go back inside and settle Grandpa's room bill. Molly calls the cab, and about 20 minutes later, we're back at my house. Charlie isn't there, big surprise. So I have to tell Dad what happened. Molly and I go out into the backyard, which by now is crowded with relatives gossiping and joking and laughing while they wait to fill themselves up with the smoked meats that are, even now, making my stomach growl and howl. And we find my dad. He seems to take it well. Charlie did that. Yes, he did. Excuse me a moment. Dad puts his tongs down on a folding table and unties his apron. He goes into the garage, which hasn't had a car parked in it for as long as I can remember, and suddenly comes the sound of drums. Dad's working the drum kit and they're hard. The conversation around us subsides and stops as Dad does his Papa Joe Jones act. Is this what he does when he's angry? Molly asks me. Yep. Not just when he's angry, though. It's, it's also a hobby. My dad used to just hit us, Molly says. This is better. Never really thought of it that way, but then why would I have? Molly never said anything about her dad hitting her before. You mean Howard? Howard's not my dad. He's my stepfather. I mean my dad. At a loss for what else I can say, I put my arm around her shoulders and pull her close. I guess now wouldn't be the time to tell her that Dad did this when I explained that I was dating a white girl. He pounded the drums for hours before Mom went in there, which she almost never did when he was playing. And they argued about us. I listened. I couldn't help it. And Mom said, You know what you being angry is going to get you, Maurice? It's going to drive the two together. You know that. It could be worse. How? Dad asked. You know damn well how. Dad finishes his solo and comes back out, sipping an orange soda. He comes to Molly. I'm sorry my son stole your car. I'm sure he'll bring it back. If he doesn't, I'll see to it. He pays you to replace it. Dad, if he had money, I say, he'll repay, Dad says. If nothing else, I'll pay you, and he'll pay me back. Thank you, Molly says. Not at all. It's the right thing. Besides... I hadn't thanked you yet for trying to help my dad out, Dad says. You noticed the time and ran right back out to help him. I appreciate that. I hope you can enjoy our party and get to know the rest of us. And that starts with food, excuse me. Dad turns around, picking up his tongs, and calls Mom to start bringing out plates. We know better than to stray too far from the smoker now, but we still mingle with other family members. Word of what Charlie did has spread throughout the house and yard and now serves as something of an icebreaker for Molly. From her stolen car, the conversations go on to the great-smelling food, parties past, and to mine and Molly's surprise, a bit of chatter from my cousin Stephanie about the time she saw one of Molly's stepdad's movies, The Redlands Caveman, while she was serving on a hospital ship in the Pacific. They share a good laugh over how bad the movie was. And then the food's ready. We all line up, grab plates, and take our pick of ribs or chicken pieces done with the barbecue rub that helped Mom and Dad win second place in the Dana Point barbecue contest last year. Molly and I each take a mix, grab some of Mom's cornbread rolls, and step aside to eat our fill. The hours pass. Dad, my Uncle Thomas, my cousin George, and Aunt Gaynell shoo people off one corner of the lawn so they can set up Dad's drum kit, 
and stands for a trumpet, trombone, and sax, and then they all play bebop. It's not great bebop. None of them are professionals, and I can't imagine that Dad, a chemical engineer to paint manufacturer, George, a high school gym teacher, Thomas, a bar owner, and Gay Nell, a wedding photographer, have a lot of time to jam. But that's not the point, I guess. I look at Molly, and there are tears in her eyes. I ask her what's the matter. She says, nothing. I say, you're crying over nothing? And she says, no. I've never been around a family that liked each other. <laughs> never seen that work. We hold each other as the music plays on. The sun's going down. I'm not really thinking about the car or Charlie anymore. It just seems like a strange incident in an otherwise decent day. Charlie will come back. Molly will get her car back. Dad likes her now, so maybe things won't be so tense around here. Everyone will watch my movie and have a good time, and I can say I'm not just Charlie's brother. I created something. I shepherded it into the world. Now here it is, and it's good. Then from the kitchen comes a horrible, piercing scream. George and Gaynell stop playing the trumpet and sax, but Thomas and Dad keep going for a four or two before they realize something's up. Someone's wailing in there. Sounds like Mom, but with all the music, my hearing isn't quite back to normal. The door opens and Grandpa Julius comes out. He makes his way toward Dad and says something to him. Dad stops playing and runs into the house before I can ask him anything. Grandpa comes to me next. They found Charlie. He crashed your car. He's in the hospital. Silence descends on the backyard. People start shuffling around, gathering their things. Molly and I head to the house. We'll have to ride with Mom and Dad to get to the hospital and see what's up with Charlie now. On the way to the driveway, we pass by the projector. I rewind my movie, take the reel off the spindle, and pack it away quickly. I don't know when we'll watch it, if ever. If Charlie still has a gift, it's making his stories more compelling than mine. That was Emmett's Homecoming Runs Into Second Act Problems. It originally appeared in New Reader Magazine, Volume 2, Issue 7. If you enjoyed this story and want to hear more, please like, share, subscribe, and review. I'm Jim Snowden. Thanks for listening.